Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth. Before I start this episode, I have to make an announcement because I think I've got some new readers, viewers, listeners, whatever you want to describe yourself as. I've started to make YouTube films as of late, and so I've suddenly put my work in front of a lot of different people, so I'm getting bombarded by emails and messages and all those kinds of things. And so for those of you who are new to the site who don't know what this is, this is the podcast that absolutely no one asked for. And this is a podcast where basically I talk about roughly five topics that uh, no one asked me to talk about. They're completely random, and they're things I either find interesting or challenging or things that I think we could look at in different ways. And uh, I start out each episode with a hero. And again, these heroes are pretty random. I have two heroes this week, so we're just going to jump into this episode. I've got, wow, I've got a lot. I've got six. I have number six twice. I actually have seven points on my trusty iPad that, by the way, has lasted almost a year without me breaking it, which has to be some sort of record. For those of you out there who don't know, my body puts off some sort of death ray that kills all electronic devices, watches, cameras, computers, laptops, iPads, you name it, and uh, I destroy it. We have two heroes this week. Number one, Aldo Leopold, A-L-D-O-L-E-O-P-O-L-D. Now, in New Mexico parts, he's a very well-known dude. Aldo Leopold was a guy who was around a long, long time ago. And for any of you in the United States who like to venture to wilderness areas, you have Aldo Leopold to thank because he was the one that got Roosevelt's ear and said, we need to protect wilderness areas in the United States. And the first one in the entire country was the Gila Wilderness in southwestern New Mexico, Uh, It's quite a place, and it's really undeveloped compared to a lot of other places. But wilderness areas require a specific set of ingredients. But I want to make one point about Leopold that's more important than anything else, is that Leopold was wrong. When he first first made an assessment of the American West and wilderness areas, his view, his point of view on the subject matter, in his own words, was completely off. And Leopold was like, look, nature is something that needs to be conquered, and we're going to put roads in and blah, blah, blah. And then on a hunting trip, he went to northern Mexico and saw an intact ecosystem. And this is in the early 1900s. He saw an intact ecosystem in northern Mexico, no roads, no erosion, no overplanting, no overgrazing, and said, oh my God, this is what nature is supposed to look like. I was completely wrong. Every piece of nature I've seen in the United States has already been to some degree compromised And because of that, I didn't realize what an intact ecosystem was supposed to look like. And he came back from that trip and really put the bite into his work, so to speak, and went out and really uh, did wonders for us in terms of that, in terms of creating nature areas and wilderness areas. So Aldo Leopold is the first hero. The second hero, I don't even know her last name. Her name is Sophia. She lives in San Antonio, Texas. She is a 70-year-old Latina. And I met her... uh, completely by accident at a pre-opening for a clothing store in San Antonio while I was waiting for my sister, who was doing something that women do in clothing stores. I have no idea. And this woman was sitting there, and in front of her was a small coffee table made out of wood, and on it was a book about Bengali textiles. And I picked it up, and I'm like, I don't know anything about Bengali textiles, but these are pretty beautiful. But I was I was looking at the book and how the book was put together, and it was beautifully printed and had some serious customizations. And this woman, Sophia, looked at me and said, what are you looking at? And I said, I'm looking at the bind on this book. There's checkerboard headbands and footbands. And she's like, well, what is that? And so she's, we started talking about the book. She goes, I never would have known to look for that. And then we started talking, and it turns out that 
she has lived in San Antonio for a long time, but the last 10 years she's lived there without a car and she, on purpose. And she said, look, when I'm in a car, I'm isolated. I don't talk to anyone. I don't meet anyone. And we have an amazing transit system in San Antonio, so I'm always taking the bus. And I'm on, on the bus, I'm constantly meeting people. And I'm thinking, holy cow, in Texas of all places, the Renaissance woman. And then she goes, you know, when I was 60, I, got, I took the bus to Laredo, crossed over into Nuevo Laredo, and then I took the bus south. And nine months later, I landed on the Guatemalan border all by myself, just with a backpack. And I lived in small towns all along the way. And I'm like, I think I love you. And I think you are uh, a symbol of something that America needs more of. And she was born in Mexico City, and she's going to be buried in Mexico City, but she's constantly doing these things. And just living life with that that perspective of just because everyone says, oh, you can't do that. You can't live in San Antonio without a car. I have a friend who lives in Houston with, without a car. You can do it. It's completely and utterly possible. And, and she said every single person warned her about the, the trip through Latin America to Mexico. She's like, oh, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get robbed. She goes, I never had a single problem the entire way. So whoever you are, Sophia, I loved meeting you. And you were super inspiring. And uh, thanks for that conversation. It was great. All right, moving on. Point number, after our hero here, point number one, Clean Water Act. So... Apparently, there's been some shenanigans in this current administration with, uh, we obviously know, there's a lot of shenanigans in regard to the environment. They're, they're trying to turn over basically everything that was done in the past. I think Trump's a guy who likes to break things, and if it wasn't his, he just tries to find ways to, to destroy things. Obviously, when it comes to turning over environmental protections, this isn't just Trump. This is anyone who's turning over environmental protections. Predominantly, when that happens, the vast majority of the time, it's about money, it's about resources, extraction, and people making money off that. A very small number of people making insane amounts of money to do something like overturn Clean Water Acts, Endangered Species Acts, etc. Again, this is not a Republican-Democrat thing. This is just a money thing. So I was like, God, why would anyone turn over the Clean Water Act? And so last summer in New Mexico, I was in three different bodies of water, swimming. Uh, I fished in more than that, but I was actually physically in three different bodies of water that are now all closed because of toxic algae. And so as a human being, I look at this and I think, okay, how many states have toxic algae problems? And the answer is currently 17 so a few years ago, we didn't have 17 states that had toxic water, toxic algae. I was in Texas last week and was supposed to take my new mo- my mom's new dog uh, into the water. And in Austin, dogs were dying from blue-green algae. And I told my mom, I said, I'm not putting your dog in any freshwater source within 100 miles of where we are right now. Someone asked me to go skiing, water skiing when I was there. And I said, no, because a girl had died swimming in the Brazos River. Uh, she went in a couple of days before I got there, and she died while I was there from the from the from uh, that uh, amoeba that kills, you know, goes in and attacks your brain. This is a problem. This is not something that's going to go away. This is something that's building at a rate that is absolutely astounding. And again, I go back to this, and for anyone out there that's confused for whatever reason for this happening, it is strictly about money. This is about a tiny group of people, whether they're extraction companies or politicians or a combination of both, that are personally profiting from this and in the in the basically in the interim saying, I'm selling off my long play for short-term financial gain. So I don't understand, you know, as a population, how we don't band together and, and stop this. Uh, and again, it's become so politicized that it seems like we've completely lost our ability to think common sense. 
And I just wanted to relay how it's impacting me personally, because again, last summer, three different bodies of water. And this summer, all three of them are closed and I was not able to get in any of them. And it was like, wow, this is pretty, pretty interesting. But again, I kind of feel like, you know, we're, we're, we're all busy and this stuff gets kind of lost in the shuffle, but it's so odd to me. So that was point number one. We have to just forget about politics and come back to common sense. Like, do we want to swim in lakes or do we not want to swim in lakes? And do we want to give a little bit more money to politicians and, and extraction companies or corporations who basically have said, we don't really care about the future. We just want to make as much money as we can right now. All right. Num- point number two for you photographers out there. I think this is a really important thing and I get this all the time. I want to talk about the difference between being an amateur photographer and a professional photographer. I get so, I see a ton of articles. I've been asked to write articles and uh, about how to make the jump from, or why to make the jump from part-time photographer to full-time photographer or amateur photographer to, per, to professional. Here's my answer in capital letters. Don't do it. Don't become a professional photographer. I, I just don't, I think we're past the point where that seems like a smart idea. Now, I'm jaded. I, was, I didn't know it at the time, but I came up during the sputtering last gasp of the actual real photography industry. And when I say that, I mean across the board, editorial, commercial, advertising, stock, etc. You could make a career. There were paths available to me. When I got out of college and studied photojournalism, I was, the, the route was you went to a newspaper, you learned to do how to be a photographer. And then you started freelancing for magazines on the side while you still worked at the newspaper. And then when you got enough magazine clients, you quit the newspaper and you went editorial full time. And then when you were editorial full time, you tried to get a little commercial assignments along the way because they paid better. And then eventually you would potentially leave editorial and go commercial full time. And then after you did commercial for a while, you went after advertising. And advertising is where the real money was. You could do a couple of jobs a year and Basically, that's all you needed to do financially to make it for the entire year. Uh, and stock was raging at that time. I knew I knew people making a million dollars in stock sales. I had friends in LA who were making twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month in resales alone. That was on top of what they'd been commissioned to do the pictures for in the first place. And the the truth is, all of that is gone. Stock has just been obliterated. Um, the same person that I was that I'm talking about who was making that resales a month, he does, he hasn't shot stock in five years. He just stopped because there's no value in it anymore. Very very little compared to what there was. I don't know how anyone makes a living as an editorial photographer. Uh, the small end of the commercial spectrum is gone. There's still high end commercial and advertising for sure, but there's just so many people vying for it. And then you throw in things like social media, and it just decimated the value of professional photography. So I'm not really sure why people would go in that direction. There are exceptions to these rules for sure. I have all I have a ton of friends who still work as photographers, but most of them are struggling, and many of them are trying to get out. So if you're an amateur photographer, or you're part timer, enjoy it. There's nothing better than making pictures for yourself because, trust me, and I, this happened to me. There's nothing worse than making pictures for other people year after year after year, and then you realize at the end of the year you're looking at a portfolio that's someone else's. It's not yours. And most of the time, clients who are coming after photography, and listen to this very carefully because it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's very true. Most clients have no understanding of what good photography is, and many of those who do don't want good photography. They want content. And content and photography are two different things. Content is the work that crosses your eyes, that never contacts your brain, because you've seen it. It's so expected. It's Instagram. It's 
online galleries, it's communities. That's the kind of stuff, you know, one person does something and they make a copy and then the next guy copies it and the next guy copies it and the next person copies it and it copies and copies and all looks the same. Photography is incredibly rare and photography is what crosses your eyes and gets seared into your brain and is impossible to forget. These are the historical images. And look, historical images can be something like the Hindenburg, but it can also be advertising. Look at what Melvin Sikorsky did with advertising. Look at the old Maxell ads from the 1980s. These are all sort of iconic imagery. It doesn't have to be spot news. It doesn't have to be war. It doesn't have to be any of that stuff. It's iconic imagery. And to me, I think most photographers would be better off being photographers without being photographers, if you know what I mean. There's no, I would not suggest to anyone right now to go in and become a professional photographer. I think there's a facade that you see all the time, and Instagram is great at, uh, at basically you know, uh, propagating this myth of like, oh, look at me, I've got all these followers and things are rosy, and then you realize that some, somebody's living in like their Honda Civic in a parking lot somewhere, and it's not the truth of what their life is actually about. So, and just to give you an example of this, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine works in Hollywood, and there was a, a, a group of filmmakers who had won some grand prize uh, for some short film they'd made. And he said, you know, look, look at like all these, all these stories about this filmmaking team. He said, all these guys live in Manhattan Beach. There's five guys in a one-bedroom apartment. He said, they're all, you know, basically living under the poverty line, and they, no one made a penny from this. They lost, you know, a lot of money putting this thing together. It is a great film, but don't believe the hype of, like, the, their lifestyle. It's fake. It's a fraud. It's phony. So anyway, if you're thinking of making the jump, don't. Just enjoy photography and shoot your own work. That's the key. Okay, number three. I didn't watch this whole thing, but um, now that I'm a YouTube star... Uh, <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, I'm making these YouTube films, right? I have no grand plan with YouTube, by the way. I'm not going to ask you to subscribe. I'm not going to ask you to like me. I'm not going to ask any of that. I'm making these films so I can try to learn filmmaking. That's the goal. That's my rub. So Casey Neistat's a YouTube superstar, has been for a long time, and someone I give a lot of credit to because he has spawned at least two generations of YouTuber. Um, who are never going to be Casey because Casey is talented, but the, I think the root thing of that I love about him is that he always has something to say, and he is talented. He has a production company. He's done commercial work. He's done full-length features. He's done docs, all this stuff. So he's not just a YouTuber. He has a much deeper uh, bank of like uh, talent behind him, and I don't mean talent as in this giant team. I just mean that he is talented, and so a couple of years ago, he started, I think it was around 2015, he started this daily vlog. And I was like, and I, again, I don't know anything about filmmaking, but I do know the kind of uh, intensity that editing requires post-production. And I was like, Jesus. And my first thought was, he's probably turning it over to someone else. But then I was, after I watched a couple of them, I'm like, I don't think he's turning this over. I think it's him. And and he's a maniac, so it made sense. But I, in my back of my head, I'm like, man, he's going to burn out in a major way. But then, you know, you listen to these films and watch these films, and you're like, well, maybe he's not going to – maybe if there's one person who isn't going to burn out, it's him. So he goes on this, uh, this show, this other YouTube channel a couple of days ago, and I don't know the guy's name. He's, he's a very successful YouTuber, millions of, of views, uh, I think, on every film he does. And it's a, just a long – it's an hour-and-a-half interview between these two guys. And it turns out um, that – Casey 
basically is kind of shutting things down. And he admitted on the program that he was so completely burned out at the end of that vlog thing. And he said, look, I always thought burnout was for other people. But I realized, man, I am just as more, I'm more burned out than any human being in history in terms of like the creative world. And I thought, man, that's, that's it. And he said one thing that I, I want you to take away. And I think it's important. And, and my little blowing my own horn here is I came to this conclusion over a decade before he did. Now, he has far more success online. I mean, he went looking for it and he got it. I never really went looking for it. Not that I could have gotten it even if I wanted to, but he did. But he said, there's something fantastic about not sharing. And I'm not choking up. I'm not crying. I'm actually choking. So I'm going to have some tea. He said how some of the things in his life now, and he described a couple of things and said, the beauty in this is that, I'm, and the feeling that makes it feel so great is that I'm not sharing it. And I thought, yeah, hallelujah. Like, that's the point is we've you know, as they say, diarrhea de la boca, diarrhea of the mouth, in terms of all of us have been sharing so much for so long. It's a deluge of, of content that is absolutely impossible to consume. So here's, here's my advice, is don't share as much as you're sharing. You know, I would cut, I would take all your social media apps off your phone, number one, and I would cut your online time by 75%. That's sort of a just a good place to start. And then when you are doing photography projects, forget about like ever posting everything all the time. Wait until you've got something and then show it to a confidant, someone who's good, not the, on, not the internet. The internet's not out there to critique your photography. Wait until you have something good and then get a, get a second opinion from someone who is way better than you and then wait and then pounce and share when you actually have something. All right, I'm moving on. That's probably three points and the hero. Point number four, I read every single day. Six years ago or seven years ago when I deleted most of my social media apps and I decided to start reading instead of going online, changed my life. And in such a positive way, it's probably the single most important decision I've made in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. Seriously, I'm not joking about that. I feel so much more intelligent than I did before. And I read books about everything. And as you know, I post most of them on here. Not all of them, but I post many of them. And I always felt like reading is a workout. So today, for example, I got up about 5.15, and I read for an hour and 15 minutes, got on my bike, did 30 miles, came home. That's sort of my daily routine. And I always felt like reading was a physical workout, but I could never quite put my finger on it. And I thought, well, you know, the brain is this giant muscle, so yeah, I'm working it out, but, you know, it can't be that big of a deal. And then I read this article on ESPN, and for you anti-sport people out there, you have to get over yourselves. I'm not saying you have to go watch sports, but sports uh, sports is something, are something that tell stories in a very specific way that relate to all kinds of things that are not sport-related. So there was a story about chess players, and apparently you've got this Magnus Carlsen dude who's from some Euro land, you know, socialist backwater. <laughs> Just kidding, Europe. Anyway, he's from somewhere over there, cold. It's probably already snowing there. And he's apparently the best dude. And then there's the second best dude who's an American guy, but he has like a European name. So he's probably cheating. He's probably half and half. But anyway, there was a story about him. And he was burning 6,000 calories a day playing chess. And apparently back in 1984, there was a ch famous chess match that they had to cancel because one of the guys who was a rail, like who already looked like a cadaver, 
lost like 25 pounds in the course of this match. And I'm like 6,000 calories a day. Now, for those of you who don't exercise, I just want to give you a little sample. A couple of weeks ago, I did a ride here in Santa Fe from 7,000 feet to 10,200 feet. And it was about a 50-mile ride, and I did 5,000 feet of climbing, okay, at altitude. And I didn't burn remotely close to 6,000 calories, okay? I burned a lot of calories. I think it was like 4,000. But 6,000 calories playing chess? What the hell? That, it, it seems impossible. But when I read that article, I was like, oh, my God, that's why I like reading so much. Not only because it basically is a free education, you're becoming potentially more intelligent the more you read, is, but that you're actually working out. So for those of you who don't read and don't lie and don't be, don't be ashamed, there's a lot more of you out there than there were a couple of years ago because the Internet has done a number on the human brain. It has actually physically changed the human brain. And there's plenty of articles and books out there that will give you all the scientific data in regards to that. But the, the human brain's primary responsibility is waiting to be told how to change. And the internet, for damn sure, has told our brains how to change. And it has not been in a positive way. And the reason I know this is 10 years ago, there was an article in The Atlantic called The Shallows, and which was about what the internet had done to our brain, which is where I learned some of this stuff. And the brain is waiting to be told, uh, like I said, what to do. And it's something that has to be worked out. And when you're working out, a book is a long-form workout. And now we're hooked on short forms, everything. And it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Hey, can you make a 60-second film? Hey, can you make a 15-second film? And my, my response is, no, I don't want to make a 15-second film. You know, that's insane. Why would I waste my time doing that? Because I don't really want to hang out with anyone who can't watch something longer than 15 seconds. So my advice, read. Start tomorrow. Get up an hour earlier than you normally do, if possible. If you've got kids or babies or whatever, that's going to be a challenge. Maybe you can sneak a break at lunch and read for five minutes or ten minutes. And my advice, too, is to read a paper book. Don't read an e-reader. Um, and plus, they're tracking every single damn thing you do on an e-reader. It's a bummer. But anyway, reading is a workout, and you're going to burn calories. So for those of you looking to lose a little LB here and there, I don't know, pick up War and Peace. Go for it. All right. Number five is how I want to talk about rewriting history, a revisionist history, which is very, very popular in the United States right now, and it seems to be, be becoming more popular around the world, and how easily things are rewritten. Now, I'm a skeptic. Some would say a pessimist, but I'm not. I always say a realist. That's my bailout. But I remember distinctly in high school, in history class, opening my history book, and we, we spent approximately eight minutes on world religion. You know, this was public school. There's, you're not looking for the deepest education here. You're just looking for like a skipping a stone across a pond. But I realized earlier than high school, I started to have doubts in middle school. But by early high school, freshman year in high school, I was like, okay, this isn't history. This is a version of history, right? We're, we're learning American history. And we're learning it through the filter and the window and the lens of America. Because when we got to world history... I remember distinctly there was a chapter on Islam, and it was like, this is a Muslim person, and it showed a little tiny photograph wedged in two, two pages of copy, and it was a Mujahideen guy with an AK-47. And I remember thinking, you know, that seems a bit off. Like, the entire religion is in the mountains of Afghanistan, and I think it's the largest religion in the world and the fastest growing, and yet that's the person in the book that you're representing the entire religion by. 
and I remember distinctly that moment and thinking, uh, I, I have to like do some more research here because this doesn't seem quite right. And now we live in what a lot of people consider or are calling a post-truth world, which is, oof, I don't like the data coming back. I don't like the facts coming back, regardless of what the story is and what side of the equation you're on, is people are saying, well, I'm just going to basically invent my own narrative, and then I'm going to call that the truth, and I'm going to live by that. And that's, I guess, you're, you're right. You can do that, whatever you want, but uh, it just seems odd. It, that does not seem like a smart play in the long run. And what I want to bring up uh, specifically is what's happening uh, – well, you could what's happening with the environmental movement, but just politics in general and the insanity. Because right now, one of the weirdest times politically and environmentally that I can remember in my lifetime, and I'm 50, but thanks to someone, a friend, who reached out and said, hey, Milner, you should read this specific book, which I'm reading now. I haven't finished yet. I'm about halfway through. It just it, It's hysterical because it's hysterical kind of in a sad way. But you're, I'm reading about the, the early, the colonies, Jamestown. And what was happening in Jamestown is exactly what's happening right now. I mean, exactly. And so we act like what's happening now is unprecedented. But the truth is, the shenanigans that are going on right now have been going on since Jamestown. The first thing that happened in Jamestown was this handful of uber-wealthy guys said, okay, hey, there's, you can't be in government unless you're wealthy, number one. Number two, uh, can someone identify where the best land is? And then someone was like, uh, yeah, man, it's over there. And they were like, okay, those are all land grants. We're going to give all that land to our buddies. And then, by the way, if there are any Native Americans on that land, let's just, you know, we'll label them enemy combatants and then we'll kill them. And we should start with women and kids first because then it'll take the fight out of the men. And let's get rid of them. And, oh, by the way, all the poor white people or the poor non-Native Americans um, just force them to go west because they are going to run into the remaining uh, Native Americans, and we want them to fight the Indians, not us. So again, I look at what's happening now, and I look at this guy who's now in charge of the Secretary of the Interior, who's a guy who basically said there should not be anything called public land, and they want to auction off 25 million acres of public land or about 10% of the country. They just want to sell it off, put pocket the money, and go away. These are guys that live on concrete and skyscrapers. Like, they have no relationship to this to the land. And so it's the same thing. It's Jamestown all over again. And if you look at what happened with race, uh, race, working conditions, et cetera, and remember, we had to pass legislation for ending slavery. Uh, that was pretty bad. Not ending slavery. The slavery itself was bad. Um, the treatment of women, yeah, that was pretty bad. We had to pass legislation. And oh, by the way, let's throw in child labor. Yeah, so uh, this, we, I don't know how to put this politely, but if you look at our track record, as Americans and what we've done to each other and the separation of wealth, this has been ugly literally from day one. So what's happening now, yeah, it's it's painful because we can see it coming from outer space and we still let it happen. And so the thing is, when it comes to history, you have to realize if you just if you went through public school like me, you you learned a version of history, and that varies from from uh, section to section of the U.S. But in essence, you were getting a filter from one side of the equation. And when you go back and research history a little bit, it's kind of terrifying of like how awful we were to each other, and frankly, how awful we are still being to each other. So when I said earlier that you should cut your internet time by seventy five percent, 
I think one of the best things you can do in tandem to that is go talk to your neighbors. Go house to house on your street, especially to the people you haven't met, and say, hey, I just live down there. I'm just curious, reaching out. Hey, what's going on? What's working? What's not working? How's your, what's great in your life? What's not so great, et cetera? It will peel your head back. What's happening on your block? You don't need to go online and figure out what's happening in you know some remote part of the world with some you know kid born with a frog attached to his head. It's you, you Just go on your own block. All right. What else am I going to move on? All right, I'm going to do one more point here, which I think is both simultaneously hilarious and also evidence that your archive is absolutely critical as a photographer. I'm going to give you two examples. This is the last point. So a couple of weeks ago, there was a story that I was not following at all, and I somehow stumbled across it or someone brought it to my attention. I don't remember. Jerry Faldwell Jr., who apparently is Jerry Faldwell's son, this, this uber minister, the super whatever you want to call these guys, you know, the pastor, religious religious type that has the megachurch. Uh, not really my speed when it comes to religion, but these guys are out there. There's a bunch of them. And apparently, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. lives down in, in uh, South Florida. And there, as you know, if anyone has ever, anyone listening has ever been to South Florida, if you want to get wild, if you want to get crazy, if you want to smoke some K2, and, you know, chew someone's face off, there is no better place in the country than Miami. Miami is awesome because Miami is completely and utterly unpredictable and always has been, and also was home to the greatest television show in the history of moving cinema, Miami Vice. And I am the James Sonny Crockett of Santa Fe, New Mexico, by the way. But anyway, apparently the Falwells have our association for all I know, they were, they were the ones that founded Liberty University, I think is what it's called. It's in South Florida. And apparently, Liberty University is incredibly strict. You know, there's all these rules of protocol for students and can't do this, can't do that, whatever. And Falwell, you know, is like a, is a, is a religious type, right? He's supposed to be living by a specific code. And apparently, there was a little breach in that code because Falwell Jr. and his kids and his wife were photographed somewhat by accident partying in Miami in the clubs. Now, the fir- my first response is I'm laughing my ass off because if you go back through the history of megachurches and you look at the scandals that have gone on from, t- from on and on and on and on, this is a pretty common occurrence, right? It's like, this is who I'm telling you who, what I am, but over I'm actually this other person over here and we're raking in cash and we're going to keep doing this until someone stops us. But apparently, I don't know anything about Falwell Jr. I don't know anything about his church. I don't know anything about the university. But what I do know is that he was photographed in these clubs. And the photographer who would photograph them um, is a person who has a company that is hired to, to photograph the nightlife in Miami. And so that, first of all, to me, is an, an incredibly daunting assignment because it's not easy. That is not easy photography. There's a, probably a party every night, multiple parties at multiple locations. You've got multiple photographers. That is a serious, whoever this person is, you, I tip my hat to you, a thousand times over, because I've photographed a handful of events in my lifetime, and I wanted to run run into a brick wall headfirst at high speed after each one. I just was not cut out for it. But these this photographer, whoever he, whoever he is, has this incredible system in place of tracking all the images, right? They don't throw anything away. So apparently, he kind of stumbles ac- across the fact that he has this image of Falwell Jr. and his kids and wife partying in this club, and those images get out somehow. And Falwell's response, and this is where things go sideways, and, and for any public figure, there are no public figures listening to this for, for good reason, 
But if by any chance, if they're if someone's in a public figure who's in jail and is forced to listen to this, the thing is, and politicians do this all the time, celebrities do it all the time, athletes do it all the time. You get busted doing something, and all you have to do to get out of it, all you have to do, it's so simple but so counterintuitive to the ego that accompanies all of these people. All you have to do is admit it, and it goes away. So all he would have had to have done is said, I made a mistake. Yep, you know, we saw the place, we went in, I was there for half an hour, and, you know, I thought, okay, this is the devil's den, I'm out of here. But he didn't. Apparently, what he did was say, oh, that, photo's, that photo's been doctored. You know, it's been photoshopped. That's not us. Well, that puts the photographer's reputation on the line, right? And this guy's got his legitimate business, a serious business, and he goes back and says, hey, uh, no, it's not. And oh, by the way, there's more, more images of you. And this whole thing blows up into this scandal because he's telling, apparently, there's like, you can't, the students at the school can't go to these places, but then he's there. You know, you've heard this story a thousand times over. My point is... This photographer has an archive, right? A badass, metadata, keyworded, time-stamped database. That in itself, to me, is like a glowing golden orb on the horizon because I know how difficult it is to, to create one of those things. Ten years ago, much earlier on in the digital revolution, I had already started to acquire massive amounts of digital data, like massive amounts. And at the time... All, all the Apple computers had 4X Pioneer DVD burners in them. And I was like, okay, I have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of DVDs in the closet, and I've got to burn everything in triplicate. So every job that came in, I burned three of them, right? And that adds up. You just It's insane. I had a closet full of DVDs, and I'm thinking, this is not a good solution long term. So I went to New York to Photo Plus Expo, which at the time was a pretty si – it was the East Coast photography show annually every year. And at the time, Photo Plus Expo was not a geek fest, and it was, wasn't a widget fest where it was just about equipment. You had legitimate, professional, high-end – you know, I remember seeing Albert Watson walking around in there one day. And I started asking about archiving, and man, did I – get nothing but hate coming back from every single company. I went to camera companies. I went to scanner companies. I went to computer companies. And I said, hey, you know, I'm kind of curious about this. Um, I've got all these DVDs, and I know there's people shooting a lot more than me. And like, what are people doing? And I, I either got piss off and go away, um, or I got my famous favorite all-time quote from, from the photo industry, which is, quote, don't worry about it. Someone will figure something out. And that's what I got from the biggest manufacturers in our industry was either go away, you're being a nuisance, no one cares about archiving, or I don't know what, what to do, but someone will figure something out. And so an archive is a monumental undertaking. And for those of you who are out there saying, hey, uh, it's no big deal, just put things in the cloud, that is, that's not a good solution. Because right now, if you have 50, I have 50, conservatively, 50 terabytes of data. How do I get that in the cloud initially anyway? I, knew, I know one path that I can do that, which is not exactly easy or inexpensive, but I can do it. And then I've got to archive 50 terabytes over time. And so what happens is when I bring this up, photographers get really defensive about archives because 99% of the photographers I know, including the professionals, have no solution. They have no long-term solution at all. And people are incredibly defensive. They're incredibly secretive. And they're incredibly 
they, they downplay things incredibly because they don't have a solution. And I have literally talked to professional photographers, no joke, because I called my friends and said, hey, what are you doing for archiving? And the same thing happened. Just people were like, I don't want to talk about it. Or, oh, it's no big deal. Or, I don't care. Uh, I gave up on even trying to save an archive of digital imagery. One person said, everything, everything great I've ever done is on a, one hard drive in the floor of my closet. And this is a really well-known person who who's, has a career, like a 30-year career. Another person said, I don't care anymore. I delete everything except a couple of images that I'm going to transmit. Um, this is the white elephant in the room of imaging. Archiving is a nightmare. Thankfully, there are people out there that are teaching, traveling, touring, and trying to help people like me archive. If you don't have an archive, start one. And whatever technique you decide on, whether it's cold storage at Amazon, whatever they call that, AWS, Amazon Web Service. Um, there's also that um, the company whose uh, logo is a torch, Backblaze. You know, they have, they have things. But, but again, these are part of the solution. And I think the only real solution is multiple, you know, AWS and Backblaze and something else. And then also, are you a photographer that needs to access the work? So if you need to access it quickly from a variety of locations, then you've got to build something else in. I use Photo Shelter for, for that need for myself. I keep a specific, probably somewhere, but uh, roughly probably 5,000 images in a, in a Photo Shelter database that I can access, that I can send light boxes, that I can charge people, all that kind of stuff. But I don't really have a good long-term storage solution right now because I don't. Because I just, I look at it and I go, I don't even want to try. You know, my film is negatives are set, easy to find, throw them in a shoebox. hundred years later, they're hundred years later, you open the shoebox and they're there. I can find any film image I've ever done in less than 10 minutes, have it in a scanner and have it to you. Digital files I shot back in the late nineties. God knows, God knows where they are. How about early two thousands? I don't know. I can, I can probably maybe find some of them. Do the discs work? Do the drives work? I don't know. It's a scary, terrifying nightmare. And I thought I would end on that, you know, something really positive and, uh, and fun. Like, oh, my God, the world is ending, and uh, we can't stop it. It's out of control. It's like a bad 80s movie about a volcano, basically. That's how I look at, at archiving. So that is for what it's worth for this week. I'll give that episode a C. You know, there were parts that I was interested and fired up about, and then other parts that I, you know, not so much. They were okay points. But I will be back because, again, no one asked for it, so I'm going to do it no matter what.